We are going to be in 2 Corinthians 2 today. And I think I said last week or the week before, this isn't really 2 Corinthians. This is probably 3rd or 4th Corinthians. It's just the 2 Corinthians that we have that has been preserved and that um, leaders in the early church decided was actually authoritative and a real letter that Paul wrote. Um, they had a whole bunch. You could read about the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Ephesus and all the times of, uh, there's some good books out there on how the Bible became the Bible and how what we have is what we have. And it's really interesting about the different things. You even get into Martin Luther didn't want the book of James in the Bible because it talked about works, which it did, but he was thinking of it the wrong way, kind of different. But anyway, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul is talking about something that happened. I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. Okay, wait, another painful visit? Like at some point, Paul made a painful visit. But then when we look at Acts, when Paul was in Corinth, that wasn't his painful visit. So there was another painful visit that we haven't read about, that we don't, we don't have the details of. And I think it's probably helpful that we don't, just knowing how we are understanding things sometimes. So he said, I, don't, I, I made up my mind. I'm not going to make another visit. If I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I pain? If I come there and I yell at you guys again, and then I'm there, who's there to like reconcile us because you're the only ones and I yelled at all of you. I wrote as I did so that when I came, so when he does come in prayer, he wrote as he did, wrote this other letter that I wouldn't suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice for I felt sure that all of you, of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For what I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. All right, so what's going on? Something went on in the Corinthian church. It might have been the thing that he's talking about, the, the weird marriage situation in 1 Corinthians. It might have been something different because the, the church in Corinth was mostly Gentile, mostly totally pagan, coming out of some wild and crazy and awful pagan lifestyles. And so they were, they were having trouble figuring out how to be Christians and how to follow Jesus and quit doing all these awful things. At the same time, after Paul left, there's other guys that came and they were like, oh yeah, Paul, he is mighty. He's not a real apostle, but some of the stuff that he said was really great. But here's what you should really do. And they told him they needed to follow the law of Moses and they all need to be circumcised and they couldn't eat bacon anymore. And you got to quit this and you got to quit this and you got to quit this. And it's really hard because Paul is preaching about Jesus and that Jesus saved you. And so your body is not your own, but you were bought with a price and now you're living for Jesus. And out of that, you do quit doing this and quit doing that and quit doing this. So see how those other guys' message could kind of overlap and sound like, oh yeah, that's just like what Paul said. 
but it's for a different purpose. So Paul is saying, you quit all this sin out of a response to the greatness of Jesus. And these other guys were coming in and saying, you quit all of this sin to make God like you. To get Jesus to bless you. To get Jesus to like you. Because he doesn't. So you better do right. Right? That's what these false apostles were doing. Other wild thing, and it'll get, it'll get deeper in this later on. So these other guys would come, and they would be like, I will preach a message to you for $400. And people were like, oh, this guy must be really good. If he costs $400, because Paul was free. Paul's probably not even real. I mean, if he's just coming in here and doing this for free, what good can he be? But these guys want $400. Let's pay them. And so all of a sudden, their authority was in the fact that they cost so much to teach their message. So you got to hold on to that. This is going to come up in a second. So he wrote this letter to them because there was all this messed up stuff. And he wanted them to respond by letter to what it was and work it out so that when he came in person, that wouldn't be the first time that they had that conflict. Does that make sense? He's, he is genuinely trying to help them. It's not, you're stupid and I hate your shirt. It's, I genuinely want to help you follow Jesus. And so here's some things, but I know it's going to hit you with conflict. So when he comes, they're like, man, you do care about us. You really do want to help us out. So then he goes on. If anyone has caused pain, so this person in the church that did this bad thing that we're not really sure what it was, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put too severely, to all of you. He's caused you pain. I'm not the one. So I used to work at the shoe carnival. Biggest store with multiple brands on a single floor. It was awesome. And every once in a while, the phone would ring. Shoe Carnival, largest selection, lowest prices, most unusual shopping experience of your life, guaranteed. This is Dan. How can I help you? And a guy would say, I want to talk to Joe. And I recognized that voice. It was the owner of the Shoe Carnival. And you were never allowed to announce over the PA, Joe, the owner is on the phone calling for you because the owner was in the parking lot on his cell phone calling in to let Joe, he was coming. So, you'd, just a moment, you put on hold. Joe! The boss is on the phone. And he'd be panic. And it was awesome and it was hilarious. And I didn't, I, I didn't fall into all that stuff. Which is why I didn't have a future in shoe sales. But um, everything was on that guy. When that guy showed up, any harm that was done in the store, any messed up shoe, any cockeyed sale sign was an offense to that man, right? That was the management style back then. That's what the Corinthian church is afraid of. Oh, we got to get this right for Paul. You made Paul mad. You did this sin 
And Paul's coming and he is going to give it to you. And Paul is saying, this is not me. You know, your sin, look, you hurt me the least. I'm part of the body of Christ and I'm hurt the least. The person that's among you that committed this terrible sin hurt all of you. Don't don't panic that the apostle Paul is coming to kick some butt and whoop those sinners. You you are the ones that are hurt. And that's what he's saying. It's it's all of you. For such a one, this guy, the punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive him and comfort him. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Okay, so we don't know who it was. We don't know what he did. But we have a hint from 1 Corinthians where Paul says, put that guy out of the church and turn him over to Satan. And you read that and you're like, whoa, that is serious. Like, I mean, who's going to be left here if we all turn everybody over to Satan and kick everybody out, right? Well, he had done something and he was so public about it and so arrogant about it that everybody in town in Corinth was associating the church that follows Jesus, these followers of Jesus, with that kind of behavior. And they needed to make a clear message that the the people, the followers of Jesus do not marry their stepmom. Which is what the whole scenario was. And so they needed to cut him off and show that he was not a part of them, that they did not approve of that. So we are still really bad about this. The church as a whole, as a body of Christ, we are still trying to figure it out. What happens when a leader, when a prominent person that represents all of us commits some horrible, horrible sin? Um, Typically, they just get cut off. You know, they yank all their books from the Christian bookstore and they're just done and nobody ever hears from them again and it's over. Which is not necessarily the right way, right? But there's definitely some disconnection and some some severing that needs to happen. I've heard of people that they committed a terrible sin and they were mad at how everybody reacted. And I said to the guy, I said, dude, just like you want forgiveness from all the people, can you give the people forgiveness for not knowing how to deal with a leader that sins? Because we don't know how to do it. So you want forgiveness, you need to offer it also to the people that are trying to figure out what to do when one of their leaders does something wrong. Don't use that as an excuse, right? So it's a difficult thing. So what Paul did was he wrote them. He said, this thing is terrible. You need to cut this guy off and turn him over to the devil. Why is he saying turn him over to the devil? Okay, this is totally Romans 1 and 2 stuff. That God, God loves you so much and he gives you freedom and he gives you liberty to make your own choices and your own decisions. And whatever you seek after, whatever you want, he will let you get an abundance of it. So it's designed, he designed us to desire him and to long for him and to want him so that he would just pour down the fullness of himself and fill us with his Holy Spirit and just stuff us full of his life. But if we want greed, 
If we want money and we want riches, he will step back and he will let the devil feed that. And you will get rich. If you seek after wealth, you will probably get it. A lot of people get it. If you seek after fame and, and attention, the Lord will, will step back and let the devil give you all of the fame and attention you're trying to get. And it always backfires and the devil always makes a laughing stock of us. That's Romans 1 and 2. He, God, because the people worshiped the created things instead of the creator, he turned them over to a depraved mind. Turns people over to want the thing that they want so bad. And every bit of the way, he's not doing it because he hates them. He's doing it because he knows, okay, if they don't want me, maybe once they get this, they'll be like Solomon and they'll be like, this is worthless. I want God. How can they most rapidly find out the thing that they want is worthless? Well, if they get it. So Paul wrote that, turn him over to Satan, let him see what he's doing wrong so he will change. So often we don't do this, right? Oh, I'm just going to protect him. Oh, I'm going to make sure he doesn't get in trouble. Oh, I'm going to make sure I'm going to I'm going to cushion this person's sin as much as I can so they don't have any troubles. While God is like, I want them to experience the full brunt of this to soften their hearts so they'll turn to me. And we're like, no, Lord, let me pay their, let me pay off their, let me cushion, let me make excuses. Gosh. But it's not forever and it's not hopeless. I gave us, now you should rather turn and forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow to stay their friend. Look, dude, quit calling yourself a Christian and doing this. But I want to stay your friend. I'm going to stay in contact with you. I'm going to keep texting you stupid, stupid memes and silly jokes. And I'm going to maintain this relationship, even though you and I both know you are doing wrong stuff. But the wrong stuff you're doing isn't going to sever your friendship with me. And it's not going to sever your relationship with God. That's how you show that, right? And so now Paul is saying, reaffirm, verse eight, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Reaffirm that you are with this person while they're going through this horrible sin. So that when they get over it, when the Lord changes them, uh, I, had, I had a friend and he was just, he was really frank with me and really helped me out a lot. He's like, how much trouble are you having changing yourself? Just working at changing yourself. I said, I can't change myself at all. I'm still as stupid as I was when I was 16. He says, then why do you think you're going to be able to change anybody else? Don't try to change other people. If you can't even, like, I would be the most, I would be the most skilled person at changing myself, right? And I can't do that. Only the Holy Spirit can change me. And the Holy Spirit does. Why do I even try to change another person? And so if I can't change another person, Jesus never told me to change another person. But what did Jesus say? To love them like, like they're myself. So here's a person that I can't change. I'm a person that I can't change. 
we've got something in common and I can love them and care for them and restore them. So he says, anyone whom you forgive, I forgive. What I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, it's been for your sake in the presence of Christ so we would not be outwitted by Satan for we're not ignorant of his designs. He's saying, if you forgave them, I forgave them. I'm not going to show up and be like, oh, where is that sinner? I'm going to be like, hey, did you forgive that guy? And the church is going to say, yeah. And Paul's going to say, where is he so I can give him a hug? Because you forgave him, I forgave him. And this awesome little last sentence. We have to do all of this so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. If we are the body of Christ and we've been given a ministry of reconciliation to reconcile people to God, what would be the devil's best tactic against us? To give you an even better hint, when Jesus said, by this all men, he said at the last supper, by this all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. So the thing that shows off if we are disciples of Jesus is our love for other Christians. So it's super easy to say, yeah, but not everybody that calls himself a Christian is a Christian. Be super careful thinking that because there's another guy that made a statement like that. And he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Because he was trying to make sure he could pick and choose who his neighbor was. Just like I want to pick and choose who a real Christian is so I know who to love and who not to. I know that dude is not a part of the body of Christ, so I don't need to be kind to him. What? I hope nobody would say that about me when I'm being a jerk in the to-go line at the fast food restaurant, right? I know that guy is not a Christian. See how mad he was? There's mustard on his cheeseburger. No way. Come on. We don't want to be outwitted by Satan. So when I harbor bitterness and unforgiveness in my heart, oh, I think, okay, would I rather keep on being mad at this guy that did me wrong and give Satan a little bit of a leg up? Or would I rather forgive that guy and not be bitter and be fine? And keep Satan out of our friendship. Even if it's not even a friendship. Even if I don't even have to talk to him again for the rest of my life. I don't want it to be because Satan's between us. I want it to be because we never cross paths. Right? Wow. Forgive so we would not be outwitted by Satan. So then Paul tells this little story. And it's a little historic thing. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ... Even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I didn't find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and I went on to Macedonia. It's really funny. Like you read that and you're like, what does that have to do with anything? Right? And you look in Acts and you're like, where exactly is this in Acts? I don't, I can't find exactly. It's a little disputed, a little discussed. 
None of that's what matters. What did Paul just say? Care for each other. Be concerned about each other. Your concern for one another keeps Satan out of your relationships. For instance, that one time that I came to Troas and I went to preach there and I had an open door. There were all kinds of people. But Titus wasn't there and I was so disturbed. Like, where's Titus? I got to go find him. Never mind this awesome religious activity of preaching the gospel to all of these people. I care about finding Titus more. Isn't that wild? Like that's, you're like, wait, I thought Paul just like wanted to preach all the time and, and, and preach to everybody. He was disturbed. He loved Titus so much. Titus wasn't where he was expecting him to be. And he became worried about where Titus is. And he didn't do any magic, you know, crystal ball. Oh Lord, show me where Titus is right now to reassure me. No, he just said, dude, I got to leave. I got to go find Titus. And he went after him. It's a little hint of this dude that you kicked out and you turned over to Satan. Be so concerned with him. That it's actually more important that you reconcile with him than you would preach the gospel to a whole city of people who are ready to hear it. Wow. What if, I mean, we're in Evansville, right? I don't know if every other city has as many church splits and church splants as other cities. We've got dozens. I mean, I've only been a Christian since the late 90s, and I've witnessed so many church splits and so many divisions. Can you imagine what would happen if people sought after reconciliation? Reconciliation with their brothers and sisters as more important than preaching to a whole city of willing people ready to hear the gospel. That just sounds so backwards, doesn't it? Like, I mean, nowadays you would probably hear, you know, we had this big evangelistic event and this guy didn't agree with it. So we fired him and we found another director so we could have our evangelistic event. I mean, that I, I made that up, but that totally sounds believable. As opposed to we're going to have this huge evangelistic event and the leader guy decided we weren't going to do it. So we canceled our reservation of the Ford Center and we lost hundreds of thousands of dollars of preparation and we decided to just have a prayer meeting at his house. But that's more like this, right? We rushed off to Boonville to find the guy because we couldn't find him. Wow. And then Paul says another weird thing that seems like it's out of context, but it's not. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. God is spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of God everywhere. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not so like so many peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. All right, so this is really cool. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession. A triumphal procession. When Paul says triumphal procession, I want you to think of something like a tailgate party. So when I say tailgate party, you have a thing in your head that 
is an event, right? And it looks like a certain thing. And we could probably play a game and write down what's going to be at a tailgate party. There's probably going to be beer. There's probably going to be cornhole. There's going to be people with grills. There's going to be flags or banners of the team colors, right? I could probably, you know, do a survey on Facebook. What does a tailgate party smell like? And everybody would say charcoal. It smells like victory, right? For my team, whatever. So this triumphal procession, when Paul says triumphal procession, all the Corinthians know what that means. And they have an image in their head of what a triumphal procession is. Just like you guys picture a tailgate party, a triumphal procession is a thing. So let me tell you what that is, because I want you to picture it as we read this. Okay, so let's say some Roman army, they go off and they conquer Syria and they come back from Syria and they bring all these, all the gold and the riches and the spices and, and all the great things. Well, the commander of the army would dress in purple. He would put a red makeup on his face. He would be, uh, have a laurel crown of olive branches or, or tree branches to show that he won and he's like the king of this region because he defeated all these people. There would be people walking in front of him throwing spices out on the street. And the spices would be really, really fragrant. Like uh, last week when the storm was coming, you could smell the, the storm, the petrichor of the, of the storm coming and it had that scent. Or when people in your neighborhood peel out and burn rubber and you've got that stinking, nasty rubber scent. A triumphal procession had a scent to it. And it was all of these spices and incense that they would throw out like confetti or like a tear tape parade, right? In front of the procession. So you would hear, you'd hear all this hullabaloo. You would go out, you would see the spice throwers throwing spices into the air that would have this fragrance. You'd be like, oh, it's a triumphal procession. Let's see, let's see the spectacle. And then there would be the army and there would be this champion and he would be in royal, you know, purple robe and gold and face paint on and a crown. And there are some historians that said that this was the closest Rome came in the Roman religion that they came to men and God meeting together was in the triumphal procession because everyone is celebrating and decorating and cheering for that commander that won. But they're also recognizing that he won because the Roman gods favored him and looked down on him and blessed him. And so it's almost a religious, political, frenzy, joyful power thing, right? And so he comes marching and he is all decorated and they're almost having a religious experience with the incense and with the spices and with the music and yeah, yes. And then comes the army and all the men that fought and all the spoils of war. And they'd be carrying all the, the rich spices or the rich metal 
or the ore or the riches. And it would just be like, yes. And then would come the end. And at the end would be all of the prisoners that they captured from that terrible country. And we conquered those people. And those people, you know what we get to do with them? We get to watch them get fed to lions and bears in the arena, in the Colosseum. And those guys are getting dragged along and they're naked and they're beat and they're injured and they're hurt and they don't look like us. And there, that's just the, yes, look at, look at how strong that guy is. We beat him. Look at how weird that guy looks. We beat him. And so the end of the triumphal procession and people would throw stuff at them. People would throw all kinds of nasty crud at those people at the end. And that was like the participatory activity that you got to join in on. So Paul says, love your brother in the church, restore him. And you might look really stupid because you've just said to the whole city, we aren't like this guy. We follow Jesus and this guy isn't. And he's doing terrible things. And now we're restoring him and we're bringing him back in because we have forgiven him because Jesus forgave us. And now they look really stupid because they forget because who would forgive this guy? Because Paul says in first Corinthians, if it is that one guy, he says, even the pagans don't do what this dude is doing. And here we are in the church and we have this with church leaders that even the most worldly sinful people out in the world wouldn't do some of the stuff that church leaders have done. But can you imagine restoring them and bringing them back in and forgiving them and showing them love and care and not long term bitterness for the rest of their lives? Bring him back in. We're going to look pretty stupid, aren't we? What are we going to look like? Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death, the other a fragrance from life to life. He's saying we're like the people at the end of the triumphal procession. We might look really stupid. And everybody thinks that they've beaten us. Remember, Jesus said, you take up your cross and follow me. You're worthy to be my disciple. Those guys at the end of the triumphal procession know that they are being led to their death. When the parade is over, they will go into a coliseum and die. And everybody will watch. And Paul is saying, you might look stupid. You follow, follow what God wants. And he wants us to show off our forgiveness. We are the aroma. I love this part. We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. A lot of people read that and they're like, oh, those people, I'm giving off the aroma of Christ. And that's why they don't like me. That's why they're against me. But look at who the aroma is for. It's the aroma of Christ to God. That when God comes near to me, he's like, you smell just like Jesus. You smell like my boy. I can tell you what every one of my kids smells like, right? 
you probably know. I mean, you know what your kids, you know, this people smells. It's a, it is still an identifier. We're not monkeys or anything, but we can still know somebody's smell. We are the aroma of Christ to God. We are so close to him. We are so made in the image and formed in the image of Jesus that we smell like Jesus. And then finally, this last line is so awesome. We got to talk about it just for a second. We are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but we're men of sincerity as commissioned by God in the sight of God. We speak in Christ. The word that Paul uses here, peddlers of God's word, was the word that people, you know how we got a snake oil salesman. And if I say he's just selling snake oil, you know what I mean, right? You know, the guy's selling something and it's fake and he's just a shyster or whatever, right? We got all these words. Paul uses a word like this that they used for a person that would water down their wine so they could sell more of it at lower quality and rip people off. What? These guys are watering down the message of God so that they can make more money. Gosh, like this is happening right now in 2022, right? No, we are not people that water down God's word and God's commands and God's love so that we can make more money. We are sincere. Sincere. We're honest. We are true. That's why I don't have a problem talking about how I struggle with things and that I do a terrible job at a lot of things because I would rather be sincere than anybody think that I was bulletproof and awesome. Jesus is bulletproof and awesome and I need him. Sincerity commissioned by God in the sight of God. We speak in Christ. You can get so much further. So look back, read this whole thing backwards. Sincerity of really loving this guy that sinned. If we follow the rules, you did a bad thing. You're kicked out of the church. We turn you over to Satan. We're done. Don't make it a rule. Don't make it laws, right? Let's be sincere. Gosh, my bro messed up and sinned. But I love him because Jesus Christ loves me and has forgiven my sins. And so with the forgiveness that I've been given, stuff we talked about in 1 Corinthians 1, with the forgiveness I've been given, I'm able to forgive him. Because I don't want to give Satan any space between us in our relationship. And so it all, it all wraps together. This stuff on forgiveness is a big deal. Last thing I want to say about forgiveness is it's, it is all about your relationship between you and God and not that person that sinned against you. The person that has sinned against me that I have unforgiveness for do you think they even care about me? Do you think they even know that they sinned against me? Do I need to restore anything with them if I'm never going to see them again and we're never going to cross paths again? What's the forgiveness about? The forgiveness is about me growing with Jesus. And I get to fully embrace his forgiveness when I practice it and when I act on it. That's why we pray the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us as we forgive others. I get to really appreciate and learn and grow in learning what his forgiveness is 
as I offer it to other people who didn't do anything near what I did to Jesus. They didn't even come close to me hammering him on that cross, right? So, gosh, I love it. There's so much good stuff wrapped in together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that your word is living and active and sharper than any sword. Thank you that you grow our soul and our spirit by the power of your word working in us. And I pray that you would help us this week to forgive other people, that we would just be an abundant fountain of forgiveness. And that through that, we would realize the abundant fountain of forgiveness that you are for us, that you have forgiven all of our sins and that you don't hold anything against us, that you love us so much. We even smell like you. Thank you so much, Lord, for your grace. We love you. Amen.